This week on Daiwa, we're featuring Mahaska County. Two parents die within months of each other during a family feud. Welcome to Daiwa, the first Iowa-focused true crime podcast, where there's 99 counties and a murder in every one. These are your hosts, Beth LaValle and Allie Tulin. Okay, this week we are in Mahaska County. I have been here. What about you? Exciting. I have not. Oh, we did a lot of sports. <laughs> sports touring in Mahaska County. What kind of sports? Oh, it was like elementary school Beth <laughs> tagging along to my older brother's okay, okay. baseball and basketball games. I know you've mentioned show choir, so sports kind of threw me oh, off. I would not. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't call that a sport, but it is one, mm-hmm. if you know what I mean. For sure. I am super excited about this one, though. Get ready for my ramblings. <laughs> uh, so Mahaska County is just southwest of Des Moines, and it's home to Oskaloosa, Iowa, where the case we're talking about today is located. But the fun fact that I'm very excited about is that Tom and I watched this documentary a long time ago called Man vs. Snake. Oh, my God. And they follow a local Oskaloosan. I don't know if that's what you call it, yeah. but I'm going to call it that. And his name is Tim McVeigh, not the Oklahoma City bomber, <laughs> a, a different Tim McVeigh. Um, but he was the first person to reach 1 billion points in a video arcade game called The Nibbler, uh, which is actually... I don't, did you call it snake? I know what snake is. I had no idea what the nibbler is when you told me this. Okay, so it's it's either the same game as snake or very similar. It's just like where the one line connects with other dots and then the line grows and you have to avoid your snake line. I have not Anyways, played though. Have you? I have played like, <laughs> I feel like wasn't that the game on like graphic calculators or something? So, like, when you're in class and bored, I think I've played that game. (laughs) Anyways. So, yeah, this guy is from Oskaloosa, and then he started a video game arcade in Ottumwa, and it follows this guy around because he's trying to stay at the top of the leaderboard. Oh, um, very cool. the Nibbler. But it's pretty interesting. I am not really a gamer. But I thought it was interesting, so... Okay, so I'm adding Man versus Snake it. to my queue. <laughs> Probably, yeah, you should. I think it's on Netflix. Anyways. Anything you enjoy about Mahaska County? Ooh, okay, so I did look it up. Um, there is this cool picture of Cold War era playground equipment on their Wikipedia page. <laughs> I had never heard of that, but I looked at the image and it just looked like a rocket ship. Also... Mahaska County was named after Chief Mahaska of the Iowa tribe, which is cool. And there is a bronze statue of Chief Mahaska that actually sits outside of their courthouse. And the statue was erected in 1907. Very cool. Yeah. Love it. Okay, let's dive in because we've got a lot to get through today. So, it's 1987. President Ronald Reagan makes his Berlin Wall speech imploring Gorbachev to take down the wall. Madonna, Michael Jackson, and Bon Jovi are all at the peak of their careers. CDs and Walkmans are the new hip thing. Everyone has one. And in Oskaloosa, Iowa, a woman is mourning the loss of her husband. That's right. 
Mary Ann Green was married to Herman Green for 25 years. They lived in a trailer park and apparently were a great team and did everything together until he had a heart attack and died on June 6, 1987. But that's not the end of her troubles. While she's mourning, some of her stepsons are questioning why they aren't the executors of their late father's estate. Some talk to Marianne about it, and some don't. And then on the afternoon of September 27th, 1987, Marianne Green is found dead in the bedroom of her trailer home, with one stab wound to the chest. In an article, one of the DCI spokesmen said that she had a, quote, tremendous loss of blood, unquote, and it looked like she wrote the letter N in her own blood on a mirror. We're still not sure what she was trying to write. People were initially confused, especially her neighbors. They thought, who would want to harm this seemingly innocent woman? She was somewhat known in the town, and she was the retired owner and operator of an Oskaloosa restaurant. Um, She had been a member of the Order of the Eastern Star and Daughters of the Nile, which is basically a sorority for women who are married to Shriners or Masons. And she had six kids and eight grandchildren. And we are going to list out her kids. Um, She had one adopted son who lived in Colorado named Jack Templeton. And then the rest are stepsons. So first is Steve Green, who had lived in Creston, Iowa at the time. Donald Green, who was in North Liberty, Iowa. Bob or Robert Green, who was in Mason City. Richard Green, who was in California. And Michael Green, who was in Oskaloosa. So to answer your earlier question about who would want to harm this woman, uh, people's theories were that her own stepsons would want to harm her. We'll talk about this later when we walk through the trial, but there were rumors that some of her stepsons, primarily Stephen Bob, that were upset about the status of their late father's estate. They thought that they would be the primary executors when in reality Mary Ann was in charge of keeping and dispersing the family's inheritance money. Some articles say that Herman Green's net worth was up to $1 million, presumably from the excavating company that Herman owned. It was known in the family that Steve and Bob had talked to Marianne about the issue, and some even testified that Steve was harassing Marianne about the inheritance. It was also well known that each stepson would receive around $90,000 after Herman's passing, but it was to be distributed at a later date. So while those rumors were floating around, officers arrested David Kelly Yant, a 23-year-old from California, for first-degree murder of Mary Ann Green. He was arrested two days after he was married in California on November 9th, 1987. What a honeymoon. Tough stuff. (laughs) Authorities said right away that they suspected that Yant was hired to kill Mary Ann by a relative of hers. Richard Yant, Yant's father, said... David worked with one of the sons in California, but he also said that David has never done anything more troubling than, quote, having a few beers. And then a few days later, on November 12, 1987, 29-year-old Richard Green turned himself in and was arrested and charged with hiring a hitman to kill his stepmother for the inheritance of almost $100,000. While at the crime scene, officers found a knife outside the trailer home. Detectives traced it back to belonging to Richard Green, and they believed it was the murder weapon. So some other pieces of evidence that had tied Yant and Green together were that Yant had used an alias when checking in at a motel in Oskaloosa on September 26, and Green had used the same alias a few weeks earlier when he visited Oskaloosa. It's believed that Yant also purposefully wrote his California license plate wrong when he was checking into his hotel, 
or motel. A handwriting test matched Yant's job application to the motel check-in form. Five phone calls occurred between a Green family member and Yant between August and September, and money was wired from a Green family member to a Yant relative in Colorado on September 25th, just one day before Marianne was found dead. Both Yant and Green were held at the Oskaloosa County Jail on bonds of $500,000 each before the trial. The trial actually moved out of Mahaska County to Polk County because there was so much press coverage and rumors flying around about the family, and it was suspected that they wouldn't find an impartial jury. They both pled innocent. The trial begins, and the defense team brings in a bunch of witnesses, 25 of whom are being brought in from California. So the defense team's main argument is that there was no concrete evidence that Green conspired a plot with Yant. They said that there was no hard evidence that Green had an ill will toward his stepmother, and they said that Yant only arrived in Iowa to deliver marijuana to Green. In contrast, the prosecution team put together a timeline of Yant driving to Iowa, killing Mary Ann, and then driving back to California. However, the defense team had two doctors that testified that the autopsy reports showed Mary Ann died at 1 p.m. on September 27th, but the prosecution said her time of death was 10 p.m. on September 26. This is important because the change in time would affect the accuracy of the timeline of the prosecution's theory that Yant drove to Iowa and then back to California. The defense team claimed the state changed the time. The prosecution argued that the death certificate was accurate based on the medical evaluations made at the scene. All in all, the defense team won out by arguing that the jury could not have been sure beyond a reasonable doubt that Yant and Green did it. The jury deliberated for 20 hours after the two-and-a-half-week trial, and the judge declared a mistrial. The jury favored conviction with an 8-4 margin. Defense lawyer Alfredo Parrish was quoted in his closing argument saying, Don't fall into the trap that because the state says somebody has been killed, you have to convict somebody. On November 1, 1988, the jury fails for the second time to reach a verdict. Judge Riley reluctantly declared a second mistrial after the jury said it was hopelessly deadlocked at 11 to 1. It isn't known whether the majority favored conviction or acquittal. And finally, on March 2, 1989, both men were found not guilty after the jury believed the prosecution didn't prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Keep in mind, both men have stayed in jail this entire time. Here's a quote from Yant after the verdict. It feels fantastic. I'm pleased with the verdict, and I'm very thankful that I'm going back home to my wife. He also said he wanted to become a writer and write his first book about this experience. But from a quick Google search, it seemed like that didn't pan out. Which is a bummer, because I would have read it. Same. And after all that, Richard Green got his $110,000 from his stepmother's estate. He was required to use it to repay the state of Iowa for lawyer fees, so there wasn't much left of it after that. He still lives in California. I tried looking up what happened to some of the brothers, but with the last name Green, it's a little bit tricky (laughs) confirming the correct people. Um, It seems like they're all still doing well and mostly stayed in their respective states. I know I've got some questions, so are you ready to call taps? I am. Let's do it. Hey, Taps. Good to hear you. How's it going? Um, So as per usual, I'm going to start with a really dumb question here. So (laughs) I'm assuming from this case, it's like you get 
two mistrials and then the third one is just you give up trying to have a trial is that correct no um in fact there was just one with a corrections officer in iowa a couple years ago where they tried him three times and i would have to go to the iowa rules to see if there's a limitation but just off the top of my head i don't think there is i think as long as the prosecutor there's not prejudice in the trial the prosecutor can come back and retry as many times as they need to retry. So do people just stop because they run out of money? Well, I think usually if you get, and again, it would be the, what are the reasons for the mistrial? Has there been some, you know, antics in court or did the prosecutor say something they weren't supposed to? Any of that kind of stuff. I mean, you would obviously go back and retry the case because you'd try it without the error. Um, If you have a hung jury where the jury can't make up its mind and the judge releases them, if you do that more than a couple of times, I would think the prosecutor would say this isn't worth it anymore. So very hypothetically, you could have a person in jail that is just waiting on bond in jail in between his trials for in indefinite time. Well, they could they could be held, yeah, pre-trial. There was a case in Louisiana where a guy was held for almost eight years pre-trial. If I recall the case correctly, the prosecutor dismissed the case and released the guy, but he'd already served eight years in the county jail. Oh my gosh. So this case had a lot to do with being an executor of a will or an estate. As an attorney, how would you recommend people set up estates to be handled? Should it be by family? It seemed like that caused a lot of issues with this. And can anyone just be an executor? Any competent adult can be an executor, but people really ought to think long and hard about who they appoint executors of estates. And again, most people don't die with that big of an estate. So it's really not a big issue. But the people that have substantial means really ought to give some thought to who that person's going to be because that person makes a lot of decisions. And you want somebody that's kind of on top of their game. So this case was really interesting. I mean, they got them right away, but then the um, suspects were acquitted. Do you agree with what happened? Do you think there was a different way to handle it? Or what are your thoughts? I don't know if I know enough about it. From what I read, again, it seemed like they had a lot of good circumstantial evidence with these two. But obviously, the jury heard things in trial that they didn't latch on to. And so it was difficult for them to come up with a decision. Yeah, I feel bad for the prosecutor because it looked like they were trying to put together the best case they could, but just didn't go go their way. I am interested in these expert medical examiners that they had testify. So you can have any sort of expert testify. Is that correct? If they comply with the rule of the court to be an expert witness, in other words, they're they're probative as to what some science or something that needs to be explained. And then they can voir dire, by voir dire, give the jury the reasons for their expertise, then there's experts used all the time in all kinds of different subject areas. So like, would Beth and I be considered murder podcast experts? Probably <laughs> not. That? Let me probably, share with you how Audacity works. <laughs> probably not. <laughs> Good to know. And the prosecutors can do this too, or like... Yes. It was weird in this case how it was like the death certificate time versus this medical examiner time. So would the prosecutors have to go with the death certificate time or was that their choice? 
Well, no, they would have to put on their best evidence of what they thought happened. And it's ultimately up to the jury to decide which expert was correct and which time was correct. If you really want to see a battle of the experts in a criminal homicide case, look at a case uh, where the insanity defense is used. Because in those cases, you will see experts on both sides, psychological, mental health experts, trying to explain why a person was not cognizant of what they did or why they were cognizant of what they did. That's where you see a lot of experts in, in murder cases. Another crazy thing that happened in this case was Richard Green turned himself in, but then pled innocent. Do you see that happen a lot or what what is the reasoning behind that? Is it after they hire a lawyer and they are recommended to do certain things? I don't know. No, I mean, he just, I'm sure there was a warrant issued for him and and he wanted to clear himself. So you turn yourself in to clear, you know, you clear your name or whatever, and then you somehow get bond or get released pre-trial. Remember, people are always used to people getting thrown in jail before trial. And really the courts and the law favor keeping people out of jail before trial because they haven't been convicted of anything. They're sitting in jail awaiting a trial by their peers. And, and so judges and statutes tend to try to keep people out on the street. So I've got a weird, curious question, but so the defense said that Richard and Yant were exchanging marijuana and that's why Yant went to Iowa. So if that is their story and he's testifying with that, could he then be charged for selling drugs? I doubt you could charge him just on the testimony. You'd probably have to have some other evidence besides that. Remember that it's never illegal to consume drugs. It's only illegal to possess drugs. So they would have to come up with some other evidence or something of what was happening. But if they did and they could, yeah, they could probably charge him. Wait, why is it not illegal to consume drugs? I don't think I knew this. It's never been illegal for you to be on, I shouldn't say consume, be on drugs. What's illegal is for you to possess drugs. That makes sense. Um, we're also curious how much defending yourself actually costs in a case. And if you don't have the money, does the state actually pay for it? Well, of course, the state pays for anybody that is indigent to have an attorney. Is it the attorney's um, rate, though, or is it like a special rate that the state provides all attorneys? Special rate. So usually it's public defender's office, which are lawyers that do nothing but defend indigent criminals. But if there's some kind of conflict or if there's not a public defender in the jurisdiction, a lot of times they will pay an attorney, a private attorney to do it. And usually the state sets a rate, an hourly rate to do that. at. Do you have any idea how much it costs to defend yourself if you don't go through the state? Well, I mean, if you defend yourself and you don't incur any expense, you can do it for free. But the famous saying is those that represent themselves have a fool for a client. So in a lot of big cases like murders and stuff, when people say, judge, I don't want a lawyer, I want to defend myself, a judge will have a lawyer shadow them, even sit behind them at the defendant's table to offer advice or help them with things. Now, some of these clients won't take any advice, won't do anything. Lawyer can say whatever they want and they're going to do whatever they want. But uh, judges don't like what we call pro se litigants, litigants that don't have attorneys. A jury trial, especially for a murder, is a very formal, complex dance. And these guys don't know how to do the dance. 
And so it, it really kind of messes up the entire trial. There's a lot more chances for mistrial, a lot more chances for appeal, things like that. The judges like to have attorneys on both sides. I prefer that too. Because my opinion matters. <laughs> <laughs> but you, so like you were a lawyer in like the 90s, what was like the going rate to hire a lawyer? Well, if you hire a private practice lawyer, it depends on how much lawyer you're hiring. I mean, there's guys that, you know, charge $100 an hour. There were guys that charge $300, $400 an hour. If I recall, I think the indigent defense hourly rate in Iowa is something like $60 or $70 an hour. So if you agree to take cases for the state, that's how much you get paid. Still a lot of money. It can be. I think that's that's everything that we have. Beth, are you, do you have any other questions? Nope. Final thoughts? Money. One of the biggest reasons for homicide in the United States. Money. Great quote. Our capitalist culture. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks for joining us, Taps. Thanks. Okay. Oh, hello there. As a marketer, I hate promotions like this. Same and same. But I love content. Me too. So if you like our content, give us a like, follow, share, subscribe, note, fax, literally anything you think would help us continue making Daiwa a success. Thank you, thank you, thank you.